Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode will begin to talk about Wilhelmus von Nassau, William the Silent, and much more. He was the leader of the Dutch side of the first few decades of the Eighty Years' War, the Dutch War of Independence. Reluctant for secession at first, reluctant for full independence later, he eventually helped lead the Netherlands to freedom and independence from Spanish domination. Before I begin, I want to stress that it was not my initial intention to create a large multi-episode series out of William the Silent. It was like with the dyadache from last season when I was really just interested in writing about Seleucus, and all of a sudden I had four and a half episodes worth of text. This time, I actually started out reading a bit about Maurice of Nassau and thinking it would be interesting to write about him. As I tried to learn about him, his story made little sense to me until I started to learn about William of Orange Nassau, and then neither of their stories would make any sense without being wrapped in the broader story of the Dutch Revolt. So instead of one episode or two for the two of them, we've got maybe six, seven. Now, I certainly give tons of context to understand what's happening with the Dutch Revolt, but a full overview of the 80 Years' War would probably be like 20 or 30 episodes, and I'm just not doing that. So anyone expecting the Mike Duncan treatment and a full Revolutions podcast prequel will probably be disappointed. But... If you want to learn something about the Dutch Revolt and some of its main characters, especially William the Silent, his son Maurice, and their biggest enemies, then you might just enjoy this. Maps of the 17 provinces and all other images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. You can send an email to me with comments or questions at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at TheAlmostForgot. This is Season 3, Episode 6. This is the Dutch Revolt, Part 1, William the Silent. And this is the Almost Forgotten. William the Silent led the Netherlands through much of the early movement to secede from Habsburg, Spain, ruled by Philip II. It was a struggle that would outlast both of them in what would eventually be called the Eighty Years' War, although the real fight for independence took place mostly in the first half of that time. Now, before we even do our tour of the world during William's life, we need to do a little scene setting on what the Habsburg Netherlands was at the time which essentially is today's Netherlands and Belgium combined, plus Luxembourg, and some of neighboring France. The Low Countries, as they were called, had once been a northern extreme of the Roman Empire. In the early Middle Ages, the southern Netherlands was the cradle of Clovis' Frankish kingdom and was central to Charlemagne's follow-on empire. He expanded into Frisia, the northern Dutch coast, in part to subjugate this land of sailors and merchants who were compared to the early Vikings in terms of seamanship and piracy. As his kingdom split apart after his death, most of the Low Countries began as part of West Francia, but eventually moved under the dominion of the East under Henry the Fowler, Otto the Great's father. 
It was during this period that the region began to take shape as smaller vassal states with hereditary rulers. One, Dirk I, became the Count of Holland, a Frisian territory along the coast that was inundated with rivers, streams, and oftentimes the North Sea. As medieval France developed and the Holy Roman Empire came to rule Central Europe, the Netherlands remained somewhat peripheral. They were part of the empire, mostly, but were not central to it, and retained some modicum of independence. The parts closer to France were often invaded and taken over by France. Throughout this period, towns began to spring up in Holland in the northwest, as dikes were built to keep the seawater out. As dry land was developed, the people appealed to the local lords for legal recognition, which was granted in various charters. By the early 1200s, at least some citizens were given rights and codified laws, granted the ability for trials, and protected from arbitrary imprisonment. The region also became a hub of maritime trade thanks to its location on a system of major rivers and proximity to the sea. Bruges became one of the most important cities in Europe for trade and commerce. Its proximity to the sea at the time of expanding maritime trade led to a thriving community of expatriate merchants developing a real framework for commerce. Bruges became the northern base of operation for the leading bankers of the day, the northern Italians, and the Hanseatic League had one of their half a dozen or so major trading posts in that city. As trade grew, especially in the cities of Holland, the merchants and burghers of the town were given rights to send representatives to the counts and dukes that ruled over them. Meanwhile, in the farther northern Netherlands, the region of Frisia had its own thing going, uniquely outside of the traditional feudal system of Europe. The original kingdom of Frisia had by the 16th century been split apart by the encroaching North Sea. The western portion became Holland, and hung on to the nautical heritage. The east is the northern Netherlands and kept the Frisian name. It was part of the Holy Roman Empire, but rather than rule by a vassal lord, they had, for centuries, lived under what was called the Frisian freedom. They sent a representative they chose to deal with the empire, they had little or no central authority, and they had a country of freemen, not serfs. Eventually, through the intricacies of European royalty and inheritance, in the 1400s, the Duke of Burgundy, which was a region bordering France, the Holy Roman Empire, and Switzerland, was able to add the Netherlands to his territory. This Duke Philip worked to crush the power of the burghers, who were running some of the large cities and, in turn, essentially running entire provinces. In Holland especially, the burghers would meet with the stadtholder, the representative of the count or prince in the region, and discuss issues. The duke, who had gained his various titles in part by pledging to uphold the ancient rights, ignored these agreements. Right around this time, the Dutch began to take to the high seas with zeal, thanks in no small part to Willem Buckle, a national hero who figured out a way to salt and preserve herring so that they could be taken on long sea voyages. The Dutch built on their heritage as sailors to become masters of the sea, and the seaside provinces became filled with men who were able to sail, to trade, to fish, and to fight at sea. Their superiority on the water will be crucial to their independence movement. Duke Philip's son, Charles the Bold, was a bit too bold, 
and tried to make the Burgundian holdings into a kingdom, one running north-south in between the empire and France. He was killed and the kingdom of Burgundy was carved up, but the leaders of the Netherlands didn't sit idly. The biggest cities in Holland and Flanders sent representatives to Ghent and met with Charles the Bold's daughter, Mary. She was a local, born in Brussels, and after deliberations and promises by her, they offered her what is called the Great Privilege, which she signed in 1477. It was an agreement, a set of rules for her and rights for them, including taxing commerce, raising armies, and other essential efforts, a legitimate attempt at some sort of limited government. Mary wed Archduke Maximilian of the Holy Roman Empire that same year, which sort of ended Burgundian independence, and only five years later she died in a horse-riding accident. We could dive more into the intricacies of who ruled the territory and through what methods over the next few decades, but what remained unchanged from that point was, by 1533, the year William the Silent was born, it was under Habsburg dominion. At that point, the Low Countries were ruled by the powerful Charles V, Habsburg ruler of the Holy Roman Empire and King of Spain, which by the way included the two Sicilies. His holdings stretched from the Spanish border with Portugal across the whole of Europe to the borders with Poland and Hungary, excluding France, Venice, and the Papal States. The Habsburgs ruled the most powerful entity in Europe, and its territory in the Netherlands were wealthy, which made them important. It's also important to realize that the Low Countries were not a monolith. They were 17 different provinces. In the furthest south was Wallonia. This included, moving east to west, Luxembourg, the Bishopric of Liège, and Hainaut. Further west was Artois, and as you move north from Artois, you get to Flanders. This includes the large county of Flanders, which included the cities of Ghent and Bruges, and the Duchy of Brabant, home to Antwerp, Brussels, and Breda. Compared to the north, the regions of Flanders and Wallonia were more Catholic, more connected to France, more metropolitan, and more traditional. Moving northwest on the coast, First was Zeeland, really a bunch of large islands on the estuaries of the massive river systems, and then Holland, which had cities that were on reclaimed land, populated by mariners and merchants. To the east and north, across the Zuider Zee, a large lake connected to the North Sea was Frisia and Groningen. South of those two, bordering the Holy Roman Empire and north of Brabant, were Overijssel and Gelderland. In the middle between Gelderland and Holland was the small province of Utrecht. By this time, Antwerp had well surpassed Bruges as the leading commercial center of the Netherlands and was probably one of the two or three biggest cities in Northern Europe. George Edmondson, in his book, A History of Holland, wrote, quote, Bruges had now ceased to be the central market and exchange of Europe owing to the silting up of the river Zwin. It was no longer a port, and its place had been taken by Antwerp. At the close of the reign of Charles, Antwerp, with its magnificent harbor on the Scheldt, had become the counting house of the nations, the greatest port and the wealthiest and most luxurious city in the world, unquote. They cite some other factors as well. 
But according to Bolton and Bruscoli in the Economic History Review, Antwerp had certainly taken over as the merchant center of northern Europe by the end of the 15th century. Flanders, including the Duchy of Brabant, was a great manufacturing region too, textiles, silks, etc., and Antwerp and Brussels were the shining jewels of the Netherlands. Amsterdam and the other cities of Holland were growing in importance, but were still smaller. On top of this, Christendom had been upended in Northern Europe as about 15 years before William's birth, Martin Luther wrote his 95 Theses. Lutheranism was big in Germany, while Calvinism took hold in the Netherlands, especially outside of the nobility. But we'll get there. As for the rest of the world at this time, to the east of the Holy Roman Empire lay the Kingdom of Poland and the Duchy of Lithuania, which were on the verge of forming a powerful state. But more importantly, the eastern flank of the Holy Roman Empire was dealing with the Ottoman Empire. Constantinople had been taken less than a hundred years prior, and the Turks had been turned back from Vienna twice already. Hayred and Barbarossa was patrolling the western Mediterranean and had helped incorporate North Africa into the empire. Europe lived in fear of the encroaching Ottomans, which had recently smashed the Kingdom of Hungary into submission and threatened to do the same to Habsburg lands in Austria, as well as their lands in southern Italy and the Mediterranean. Elsewhere, the Songhai Empire was at its height in western Africa and beginning to edge out the Mali Empire for regional dominance. Moving east, the Safavid dynasty was in its early stages in Iran, while the Mughal Empire had just been founded in Central Asia and had not yet expanded to taking the smaller kingdoms of India. In China, the Ming dynasty was in a golden age. In Southeast Asia, Paramasawara's Malika Sultanate had just been displaced by the Portuguese and local allies. Across the ocean in the Americas, the Europeans were also causing seismic changes in the power structure. Cortes had conquered the Aztecs in the early 1520s, Pizarro the Incans in the early 1530s. Back in Europe, William the Silent was born in Nassau, his family's traditional holding in southwestern Germany. His father was a Lutheran, and until he was 11 years old, so was he. But in 1544, his first cousin, the Prince of Orange, Baron of Breda, and Stadtholder of Holland, Zeeland, Gelders, and Utrecht, died and left him his holdings as long as he promised to get a Catholic education. The Principality of Orange was a small sovereign region in southern France that technically was part of the Holy Roman Empire. His holdings in the Netherlands weren't vast either, but his cousin, as stadtholder of four provinces, provided an impressive lineage, although William didn't inherit that particular title. William, although not stadtholder, was now the Prince of Orange, and William of Orange moved to the Low Countries, first to his new barony in the city of Breda, then on to Brussels, the capital of the Duchy of Brabant and of the 17 provinces. He became a favorite of Emperor Charles and began the military training expected of a young leading nobleman. In 1551, William married Anna von Edgemont, a wealthy heiress from a powerful family, and he inherited more Dutch lands. William was of medium build, 
solid but not stocky. He had a dark complexion and had brown hair and brown eyes. Like most young nobles, he was involved in the empire's military at a young age, and he moved quickly up the ranks. By age 20, he was given command of the imperial army along the French border. No doubt his territorial holdings and his relationship with the king had much to do with this, but he was a capable and well-respected commander. He didn't disappoint in this role, and soon the young Prince of Orange was given a role at the center of a momentous event in European history. Charles, now aged and racked with gout, stepped down as king and emperor. In Brussels in 1555, he ceremoniously abdicated his Dutch holdings, and he had William walk beside him, even leaning on the young man's shoulder as he entered the cathedral. Charles's own son, Philip II, was there as well, as was his nephew, Archduke Maximilian, and Emmanuel Philibert, the Duke of Savoy. Charles did not abdicate all of his territory to one man, though. Instead, he split his massive empire in two. Eventually, the Holy Roman Empire went to his brother Ferdinand, who was already ruling in the Habsburg hereditary Austrian lands. The Kingdom of Spain, now the dominant power in Europe thanks to its New World holdings, was given to his son, Philip, who was also married to Queen Mary of England and stood to bring that island into his holdings. Although the Netherlands had much closer geographic and cultural ties with the Holy Roman Empire, which was also undergoing religious reform that was absent in the Mediterranean, than it did with Spain, Philip also received the 17 provinces as part of his kingdom. Perhaps it was because the Low Countries contributed something like 40% of the Spanish Empire's revenue and were essential to funding its global expansion. The transfer from Charles to Philip was when the real trouble began. Philip grew up in Spain. He spoke no language other than Castilian. He cared little for the customs of the Netherlands, less for their supposed rights and charters. In 1556, Still in the Netherlands after the abdication ceremony, he asked for a 1% tax on real estate and 2% on sales. This was to help pay for Spain's wars and battles elsewhere and had nothing to do with the Low Countries. As we will soon see, although nothing fires up the general populace like Catholics running around condemning people to burn for heresy, nothing fires up the nobility and the burghers quite like taxation. The States General, the Assembly of the Region, refused to pay this but in a show of loyalty to their new sovereign, gave Philip a large one-time sum. This bit of semi-resistance was a sign of things to come. Spain needed money for war with France, mostly over territory in Italy. In 1557, Philip amassed a large army in the southern Netherlands and marched into France. At St. Quentin, with the help of their temporary allies the English, the Spanish demolished the French army in a resounding victory. The bravery and quick action of Lamoral, the Count of Egmont, a Dutch nobleman, was a major and well-recognized key to the victory. Egmont was one of the young leaders of the 17 provinces and a cousin of William's wife, Anna. France was utterly defeated, although Philip did not march on Paris, even though the road there was open. William was most likely back in Brussels for the winter with Anna when, in 1558, she died. She was only 25, 
and she had three children with William, Maria, who died in infancy, other Maria, who did not, and in between those two, Philip William. Earlier that year, the newly raised French army attacked and captured Calais, which had been in English hands for two centuries since the Hundred Years' War. That summer, at the Battle of Gravelines, Egmont commanded the Spanish forces and again helped secure a major victory. By 1559, Philip negotiated a peace with his French rival. Part of this peace involved the exchange of noble hostages to ensure fair dealings, and William of Orange, along with Egmont and the Spanish Duke of Alba, were selected to go. It is said that when he was there, King Henry II of France spoke to William about his plan to purge the French government of Protestants, called Huguenots in France, including some of the country's most successful and important military leaders. The king, who had spoken to the Duke of Alba, and perhaps even King Philip about this, assumed Catholic William was in on the plot. William was able to hide his surprise and keep the King of France from realizing his mistake, hence the nickname, William the Silent. Of course, if this was the case, it also made William aware at a young age of the possibility of a reckoning coming for the growing number of Protestants in his own country. The whole story sounds a bit dubious, but it dates to at least the 1600s, so it's possible. As for the rest of his life, he isn't actually considered silent or taciturn in contemporary sources. John Lothrop Motley who wrote The Rise of the Dutch Republic and the United Netherlands, wrote that William, quote, was the most affable, cheerful, and delightful of companions, and who, on a thousand great public occasions, was to prove himself, both by pen and by speech, the most eloquent man of his age. His mental accomplishments were considerable. He had studied history with attention, and he spoke and wrote with facility Latin, French, German, Flemish, and Spanish, unquote. William spent his time in Paris, but returned by the end of the year, and Philip, the conflict over, was getting ready to leave the Netherlands. His wife, Queen Mary of England, had died, and a heretical Protestant named Elizabeth succeeded her. Philip, so close to getting regency of the island through his child, which never came to be, continued to obsess about bringing England into his empire. But with Mary's death and Elizabeth's ascension, he had no real reason to stay in the Netherlands anymore. He needed a regent, and he had named the Duke of Savoy, Emmanuel Philibert. There's that family again. But one of the biggest outcomes of the war was that Emmanuel Philibert was given Savoy back from the French, and the Duke went south to administer his ancestral lands. Orange, and certainly Egmont, would have made sensible choices for the regency of the Netherlands, They were well-known and loyal local nobility, but William understood Philip well enough to get that he'd never trust someone truly local to run things. Philip's close advisors were almost all Spanish, even though he had spent the last few years in the Netherlands. In the end, Philip chose his sister, Margaret of Parma, as the regent. To advise her, he created three councils, a state council, a privy council, and a financial council. William of Orange and Lamoral of Egmont were selected to be on the state council, along with Viglius, a Frisian jurist and former advisor to Emperor Charles, and Philip de Montmorency, the Count of Horn, a Dutch nobleman and admiral. 
There were a few others, but by far the most important member was the Bishop of Arras, Antoine Perrinot de Granville. In theory, he was just another council member. In actuality, he was the council. Granville sat on all three councils, but nothing was actually enacted or advised to Margaret without his consent. This was not an official position. This was just how Margaret chose to operate, perhaps with Philip's suggestion. Along with joining the state council, William was also named Stadtholder of Holland, Zeeland, and Utrecht. The Prince of Orange became one of the most powerful men in the Low Countries now, and he had the king's authority behind him. Before Philip could leave, the provinces sent deputies asking for the removal of the Spanish and Italian troops now that the war with France was over. Philip reacted by taking serious offense that they would dare to ask anything of the sovereign. He was then presented a letter signed by all the leaders, including William, stating that they couldn't tolerate the pillaging by the Spanish soldiers any longer and to please remove them. The war was over. No need to have these people living off their lands. Philip calmed himself and responded that the troops were necessary to keep the lands safe from the French and that they were unruly because they were owed pay, something he would take care of right away. And besides, he was putting Orange and Egmont in charge of these troops, so they'd behave. With that, he headed to the coast, accompanied by a retinue of noblemen. As he boarded his ship, he spotted William of Orange, who had come to bid farewell to the king. He upbraided the prince for all these behind-the-back dealings and letters and complaints. William responded that what was done had been done by the estate's general, not by him. But Philip, in a rage, kissed William and said, I know it was you. You broke my heart. Actually, Philip grabbed William's wrist and said, according to the sources, not the estates, but you, you, you. He also, for fans of Latin language structure, used the informal you just to be a little bit more disrespectful. William may have been shocked or insulted, but he decided not to get on Philip's ship for final ceremonial farewells. Or perhaps William realized if he got on the ship, he might not be allowed to get off it until it reached Spain. So he watched from the dock as Philip left, never to return to the Netherlands. In Philip's place as regent, his sister Margaret, an intelligent 37-year-old woman and devout Catholic, was put into what would soon be an impossible situation. She was smart enough to have done a good job after a while, if left to her own devices. But Philip insisted on inserting himself into the conversation, even though he often wasn't a part of it. As tensions boiled over and an immediate response was required, Margaret often had to defer to her brother and ask everyone to wait a few weeks, something that usually ratcheted up rather than reduce those tensions. And when Margaret agreed to something that her obedient lords were requesting, Philip would come back weeks later saying, Nope, never mind, not happening. At first, though, it looked like a good choice. She was a native of the region, born after an affair Charles V had with a carpetmaker's daughter living near the city of Udenarde. Charles did not dispute the birth, and Margaret was raised by his family in Mechelen, a city in the southern Netherlands that had served as the capital before Brussels. In 1559, Margaret's regency began, and the young Dutch noblemen were living the good life. 
they developed a reputation for partying, hosting grand parties at their Brussels mansions, as well as for racking up debt. Some of this debt was not their own fault. They were paid meagerly by Spain when asked to do things like be the chief general of the French border, and they had to bring servants and retainers with them to do it. Two missions that the Prince of Orange undertook on behalf of the crown cost him a million and a half florins. The salary provided as the head of a Spanish force was 300 florins a month. Outside of the aristocracy, though, cracks, which had began under Charles before Philip's reign, had already begun to show in the Dutch society. With the proximity to Germany and France, reformed preachers entered the country, and they began converting people. Even though most nobles remained Catholic, many of the commoners, especially those merchants and burghers who were city leaders, were now Protestant. And Philip renewed a law of Charles's from 1550 before he left for Spain. It stipulated that reading, let alone owning or printing, anything of Martin Luther's or John Calvin's, as well as a few others, should be punished. Even speaking about these scriptures without proper theological education was illegal. And the punishment for these offenses was death, and very specific death. If you refuse to recant, you would be burned at the stake. Now, if you realize the error of your ways and return to the Catholic faith, repentant and sorrowful, you were beheaded if you were a man. You'd be buried alive if you were a woman, and all of your property would be confiscated to the state to add incentive to the thought police. Oh, and if you refused to give someone up who did such a thing, you were subject to the same punishment. Enforcement began, at least nominally, under Charles, but it had waned during the war. Philip was greatly desirous of really kicking off the Spanish Inquisition in the reform-minded Netherlands. Granville made sure the edict was reissued under Philip's name as soon as he could. In order to enforce the Inquisition, Philip also left a small standing army in the Netherlands, something that, as we have seen, annoyed the Dutch leaders. Granville also began to set up new bishoprics, which also antagonized everyone. The locals knew it was to help enforce the Inquisition, but they were doubly upset because the procedure went against all of their established agreements and constitutions that Philip would ignore throughout his reign. In 1560, William and the other leaders protested the Spanish army's presence once again, and he resigned his leadership of the army. He succeeded in getting the troops sent away for a time, but the real issue was that William and his buddies just weren't really allowed to govern. Margaret let Granville act however he saw fit, and he usually did his work without consulting the stadtholders. In 1561, William and the Count of Egmont wrote a letter to Philip. They complained that Granville, now a cardinal, didn't consult them on matters and yet he said they'd be responsible for the actions of the state council. Granville, for his own part, wrote to the king saying these nobles were just whining because they didn't want more presence of the Catholic Church. William at this time was attempting to remarry. A match was made for him. Granville actually helped. But Philip vetoed it because it would give William too much land and power. It would have put him in Philip's immediate family, and this was apparently a frightening thought. The arrangement was broken off, and William suspected why. 
In the end, William married another Anna, this one the daughter of Maurice, the elector of Saxony. Maurice had died, and Anna lived at the court of his brother, Augustus, the new elector. Elector was one of the most powerful positions in the Holy Roman Empire. But it was considered okay to Philip, since it didn't put William in the Habsburg family. The only problem was Anna was Lutheran. William was a Catholic at this point, and his beliefs were not questioned. But a Lutheran? Well, since these were nobles we're talking about, not peasants, it could be excused. She would have to live as a Catholic from now on, though. On August 24th, 1561, they were married. It happened to be St. Bartholomew's Day, a day of great religious conflict a few years later. Anna of Saxony would give the family more children, and one, Maurice, named for her father, will be a subject of this podcast before this is all over. Despite this happy news, though, things in the Netherlands were really starting to become difficult. It only took a few years for the persecution to be in full swing, with a dozen or so inquisitors roaming the countryside, and the people were not happy. From Motley, Quote, the great cause of the revolt, which, within a few years, was to break forth throughout the Netherlands, was the Inquisition. It is almost puerile to look further or deeper when such a source of convulsion lies at the very outset of any investigation. Philip had now returned to Spain, having arranged, with great precision, a comprehensive scheme for exterminating that religious belief which was already accepted by a very large portion of his Netherlands subjects, unquote. Now that's one historian's opinion, and some historians do say that while religion was the main reason, there were other reasons why the revolt started, but we'll get into that. Philip, meanwhile, insisted he wasn't bringing the Spanish Inquisition, which we all know nobody expects, to the Netherlands, but it was all wordplay. Granville told him that they didn't need the Spanish Inquisition, because that was designed to find heretics, and in the Netherlands, There were so many you didn't have to look. And Philip commented that he didn't need to introduce it because the one that was there was much more effective than the Spanish Inquisition anyway. The Inquisition was created to root out heretics, and it essentially gave the church the authority to kill whoever they please. As Motley wrote, quote, its process was reduced to a horrible simplicity. It arrested on suspicion, tortured till confession, and then punished by fire, unquote. I really don't want to go into the gory details, but it is important to understand how cruel, capricious, and unforgiving it was to the people it deemed heretics. Once someone was named a heretic, there was almost no escape, just torture and horrible execution. It was terrible, and it was frightening, and besides that, even its awfulness was arbitrary. You could turn in someone because you didn't like them, or because they had money so you could receive a reward, and they had little recourse. To live through it must have been terrifying, and there is no question that when it came to the Habsburg Netherlands in full force, the people felt they probably had no choice but to rebel. It sounds a bit like living under a fascist police state. The issue for Philip in the Netherlands wasn't just that there were so many Protestants, but that the Inquisition offended so many of the Catholics there. It was barely tolerated by the Catholic leadership there, some of whom probably had no problem with the outcome, but bristled at the trampling of treaties and constitutions. 
and other leaders genuinely believed that murdering people over their religious beliefs was not the right thing to do. By early 1562, with the Inquisition picking up, Granville became the target of everyone's enmity. He was said to be the most hated person in the Netherlands. The people thought of him as the persecution personified, while William and the rest of the nobility resented what was essentially his single-handed rule. Even the regent complained that he often did things without consulting her. That year, civil war in France between Catholic and Huguenot leaders flared up, and Philip demanded 2,000 Dutch cavalry to help the Catholics. Not only had he signed treaties swearing they would not have to go fight crusades for him, and were only to be used to defend the provinces, most weren't really interested in going to slaughter Protestants for the sake of a religious war. Not to mention the fact that sending these few soldiers off to France would leave the borders of the Netherlands pretty well undefended. William, Egmont, and Horn, and the others, explained to the regent that this was unacceptable. The Duchess knew they were right, and, as orthodox as Granville was, he recognized this as well. So those two convinced Philip to write a really angry letter saying he was super disappointed in his supposedly loyal subjects, but he'd accept cash instead to go raise a force of his own. A compromise in which nobody was thrilled was reached, but it was a compromise. Margaret began to realize that she was being pushed around by Granville, and she wanted to convene the States General, which the Prince of Orange and the others were pressing her to do. But Philip wouldn't allow it. The Estates General, or the States General, were the assembly of the country, the representatives. The cities in each province had a group of what were essentially considered wise men, who chose two or three of their own to represent the city at a general assembly. Leading noblemen of each area also were included. Together they made up the States General, which could convene to allow, for instance, the king to disseminate information or to poll his prominent citizens. Since Margaret was forbidden to call the States General, instead, in May of 1562, she called together the Order of the Golden Fleece. These were the noble leaders of the leadership. At this point, a century-old chivalric order, it was founded in Bruges and taken up by the Habsburgs, both Spanish and Austrian, when they gained the territory. Only the highest of the highest of Dutch nobility were members, and it included William of Orange, Egmont, Count Horn, and others who will enter our story, such as Burlemont, the Duke of Ayrshot. This honorific, in order to which the kings Charles V and Philip II also belonged, was an exclusive club which had rules that said things like, only members of the order could try and judge other members. But we'll get to that part of the story later as well. This meeting really didn't get anywhere, but it did start to show who was on what side of the argument, and some who were in Philip's camp began to accuse William that he was at least partially orchestrating some of this discontent because he really desired to be in charge of the whole of the Netherlands himself. In the end, they agreed to send Count Horn's brother, Floris de Montmorency, the Baron of Montigny, to personally petition the king. Floris went to Spain in the fall of 1562 and was well received by Philip, who told him that Granville was only trying to look out for the best interests of the people in the Netherlands and that the Inquisition would not be introduced there. 
He told him that he, not Granville, planned those new bishoprics, that he had been thinking about them for years, and they were administrative nothings, not an attempt to bring Catholic reprisals into the land. With that, Floris returned home. Some of those on the council were pleased with his report. William was not. William had already begun to intercept correspondence from the Spanish king, trying to keep himself a move ahead of his overlord. He knew they weren't getting the full story. Meanwhile, Floris, on his road home, heard rumors in France that William, Egmont, and Horn, and others, were defending the French Huguenots. While they were averse to the Inquisition, these men were still Catholics, so they considered this slander, and essentially a lie perpetrated by Granville as a PR move. It gave them some idea of what they were dealing with between Granville and Philip. William was moving further away from adherence to the government, though, at least while the government was solely in the hands of Cardinal Granville. The wheels began turning, and in the end, William, along with Egmont and Horn, decided a path to take. They would claim to be fully adherent to their protector and overlord, and state they were defending his interests in the region against the action of his unscrupulous appointees. This was a tack that William took for much of his career. Oh, great Philip, I must tell you that your regent or advisor or minister is doing things that would make it seem that you are in the wrong, which of course you're not, since you're the great Philip. It was a cynical approach, but William never publicly avowed a monarchy. Rather, it was absolute monarchy, through the hands of Philip's men, which he fought against. William was fine with Philip, as long as Philip was fine with his actual job title. It was a bit of theater for sure, but Philip was never the king of the Netherlands. From Motley, quote, The Netherlands did not constitute an absolute monarchy. They did not even constitute a monarchy. There was no king in the provinces. Philip was king of Spain, Naples, Jerusalem. But he was only Duke of Brabant, Count of Flanders, Lord of Friesland, hereditary chief in short under various titles of 17 states each one of which, although not Republican, possessed constitutions as sacred as, and much more ancient than, the crown. The resistance to the absolutism of Granville and Philip was, therefore, logical, legal, constitutional, unquote. These are technicalities in some ways for sure. Being the Duke of Brabant essentially made him the ruler of the Netherlands, but even Brabant specifically had a 200-year-old agreement called the Joyous Entry which was a charter of liberties similar to Magna Carta by which Philip had sworn to abide. Being the Habsburg king of Spain, with all his armies, allowed him to ignore these agreements. But he was never the king of the Netherlands. William and his fellow Dutch nobles wanted him to rule in accordance with their now centuries-old traditions. They were essentially fine being part of the larger Spanish empire, but not part of the kingdom of Spain. These are nuances that are important. They didn't expect to dictate overall foreign policy, but they'll be damned if you're just going to tax them without calling a meeting and asking to please tax them. Frustrated with efforts to work with Granville, in early 1653, William Horn and Egmont decided to write another letter to the king. In it, they wrote that Granville was too disliked in the Netherlands to be a good representative anymore, 
He was ruining the kingdom's reputation and sullying Philip's good name, and the cardinal should be replaced in order to further the king's own interests. Signed, of course, your humble Catholic servants who are only doing this because we care so much for your own well-being, etc., etc. The problem with this approach was that Philip was much more inclined to listen to Granville, and Granville knew what they were doing, so he sent a letter which arrived first saying, not to worry, he was doing a great job, and outlining how best to deal with these spoiled brats who think they have any right to run the Netherlands themselves. Despite the deference shown to the king and the technicalities of the government, William knew this was at least rebellion-ish, questioning the king's appointed minister, and should be handled delicately. Egmont and Horn, though, were more audacious about it, and may have turned off some other nobles in joining in on ganging up against the cardinal. Philip wrote back that he truly appreciated their patriotism and their respect for him, but they weren't really giving him any reason to do what they were suggesting. Perhaps if they were to come to Madrid and confer with him, he would understand better what their issues were. This tentative answer was typical of Philip. The letter he got had laid out all that Granville did which violated the agreements, and the fact that he ran the councils and therefore the entire Low Countries without consulting the rest of the leadership. But Philip wrote back that they really didn't seem to have much to condemn Granville. All this served to do was anger William and his fellow nobles. William's brother, Louis of Nassau, said it was clear the response was ghostwritten by Granville anyway, who should never be trusted. Egmont was asked by the Duchess to go to Spain, but he wrote to the king saying he would come, but he had to stay and keep an eye on the cardinal. He told the king if he was needed for anything else he'd come, but William and the rest said they wouldn't make such a trip just to lay out the cardinal's flaws. The regent, being there in the Netherlands, saw what was happening and petitioned the king to remove Granville as well. She said as long as the nobility distrusted him so much, there was just no way he could be effective. She didn't mention the fact that he had turned her into a puppet, but you gotta believe that was part of the issue. She also knew that Granville just might be starting to stoke a rebellion. With a little more deference given to the Dutch nobles, the Inquisition could probably go on with no more than grumbling from them. It would certainly be harder for William to find allies if most nobles felt as if they were actually in charge of most everything else. Orange, Egmont, and Horn, for their part, decided the best course of action now, after their petition to the king got nowhere, was to stop attending state council sessions. They were protesting being held accountable for the actions of the council without being consulted on any decision-making. The cardinal, Viglius, and Berlaymont, a triumvirate of Philip loyalists, were the only ones who attended. Granville, all the while, was complaining to the king about the lack of help he was getting from the Dutch leadership. He also informed Philip that his vassals kept meeting in secret in Brussels, and who knows what they were saying. They were often drinking during these meetings. All the while, a dozen officially sanctioned inquisitors were journeying throughout the Netherlands, torching more Calvinists. As the year ended, the nobles assembled for a great feast. They decided, no doubt after a few flagons with dragons, to finally act. And by act, they came up with a way to make fun of the cardinal? Cardinal Granville was fond of displaying livery, or badges and insignias, and they created one of their own. It was an image of a monk's cowl, or possibly a jester's cap. 
Then they probably marched around pompously, showing their badges and making snooty faces at each other. It apparently became high fashion in Brussels to wear these badges, and Granville was incensed. He complained to the king, while Margaret, who was no fan of Granville, laughed it off as a harmless joke. Eventually, the symbol was changed to a bundle of arrows in order to not offend Granville too much. By the end of the year 1563, even the king realized Granville's welcome was completely worn out. But being Philip, he couldn't just acknowledge the mistake, nor could he be truthful with anyone about it. He responded to letters from the Dutch leaders with vague promises of looking into the problem, but he had already sent instructions to the cardinal to leave and how to do it. Even his correspondence with his sister, the regent, wasn't completely honest. As Granville announced his leave of absence, Philip continued to send letters, playing along with the ruse, to even his closest allies in Brussels. Importantly, though, what did happen is that in early 1564, Granville was dismissed. Not publicly, of course. Publicly, it was announced by Granville that he'd be taking a leave of absence from the Low Countries to visit his sick mother. William of Orange at least suspected the truth, and said as much in his letters to others. With Granville gone, things appeared to be looking up for the Netherlands. William and his buddies returned to the state council meetings. Margaret of Parma actually began to have a cordial relationship with them. There were disagreements to be had, sure, but they had always just wanted to be heard and respected. They had never asked to be in charge by themselves. For her part, in the end, Margaret seemed to have understood the damage Granville was doing. She wrote to her brother that the cardinal's aim was to enrage the nobility in order to stoke a revolution. He was worried that if they did come to terms, his power would be reduced. I have a feeling, though, that if the Dutch nobles had just laid down for him, Granville would have been just as happy. Granville waited to see if things would calm down, but public sentiment continued to be against him. There were farcical performances mocking him, and even the staunchest of Philip's allies acknowledged he was the most hated man in the Low Countries. He realized returning from his leave of absence wasn't realistic, and by the end of 1565, he traveled south to the Mediterranean. He remained a loyal and trusted advisor to the king, but he never set foot in his native Netherlands again. With his return to the state council, William now wanted to begin the job of getting the Netherlands a proper government. He wanted to convene the states general and allow the provinces to become a part of the decision-making process as their ancient contracts and charters allowed, and he wanted to at least tone down, if not eliminate, the religious persecution. But he found that Margaret was only slightly better for the provinces than Granville. She was, like the cardinal, good at embezzling money from her territory, taking bribes and the like. Meanwhile, she wasn't all that inclined to stand in the way of the Inquisition, and it was getting worse. The large cities in Flanders were seeing people burned at the stake all the time. The prisons were overflowing. Families, children, marched to the fire for their beliefs or for accusations that weren't even true. The cities of Flanders wrote to the king requesting that a particularly infamous inquisitor named Peter Teitelman be removed from the region. He was, they wrote, killing people arbitrarily, sometimes just if he thought they were insulting him. He did it all without warrants, without due process, and going completely against the charters Philip promised to abide by. But their complaints went unanswered, 
as there were few who believed in the Inquisition and the complete destruction of heretics more than Philip. He wrote to Margaret that, despite her own belief that lightening up on the killing would make governing easier, he would in no way allow such a thing. When the council heard Philip's instructions to Margaret, they demanded the opportunity to respond. Margaret agreed and decided to send someone to talk to Philip. Egmont, the brash hero of Philip's war with France, who was so popular in Brussels, was selected. After some hours of deliberation, William the Silent spoke. He spoke unequivocally, and his anger and frustration showed. They should only send someone if they meant to really lay it all out there. The king must know what it was like in the Netherlands. Daily, people were being executed without any due process. Free provinces, with agreements that Philip himself swore to in all of their presence, could not be ruled in this manner, trampling on their rights. The Spanish occupiers had corrupted all the systems. Graft was rampant, and the king must know which of his servants were ruining his good name there. And the edicts justifying the Inquisition would simply never be accepted in the Netherlands. Even all the good Catholics, such as himself, could not abide by the killing of so many simply for their beliefs. He spoke for a while, and then the council was dismissed. Viglius, the old conservative jurist, was so affected by it he took ill. When he recovered, he worked to write William of Orange's statement in a way that was toned down significantly. It's not that he feared the consequences, but rather he disagreed with much of what Orange said. In early 1565, Lamoral de Egmont set out for Spain to meet with the King of Spain and explain the story of the Netherlands. There was worry among the Dutch that they were taking a great risk. If Philip decided he'd had enough and imprisoned Egmont for talking back, it might be the start of a real conflict, and Egmont was the province's biggest military hero. They were risking the start of a military conflict caused by losing their military leader. But Egmont was not imprisoned. He was warmly received in Madrid, with Philip giving him a hug before he even had time to kneel. He was treated as an honored guest and spent time dining and conversing with Philip. Here was the problem, though. Philip had flaws, but he knew exactly what he was doing. Egmont had some strengths, but he was in over his head. Philip buttered him up, flattered him to no end, and sent him on his way. He gave him gifts, significant amounts of money as rewards for being a leading nobleman and war hero, and in general, charmed Egmont with royal palace life. These weren't bribes. Egmont was fairly honorable. They conversed, and Egmont left feeling victorious. But the king promised nothing other than to make sure that no heretics would be tolerated in his dominions. By May, Egmont had returned and addressed the state council back in Brussels, confident he had secured peace in our time or what have you. He came back with letters from Philip that insisted on enforcement of the edicts, but which vaguely suggested the different provinces would have some authority in the matter. Egmont's feeling of victory soon went away, though. A new set of letters arrived from the king that made it clear everything would remain as it was. William and his buddies were apoplectic. They were being played by Philip, and now they really knew it. They just couldn't trust him anymore, although they also knew... He was the only one who could change things. Egmont himself was furious. He probably mostly felt foolish. He became depressed when William expressed his disappointment with him, and he retreated from public life for a bit. 
With that letter, too, the Duchess knew she was up against the wall. She had not really fought against the Inquisition, but she had thought that maybe it shouldn't be practiced so thoroughly. Philip instead made it perfectly clear his intent to eradicate Calvinism, Lutheranism, and any other non-Catholicism. As the Inquisition continued, it began to dominate the public psyche. Those who had embraced the new religions were fearful, but perhaps more accepting of their fate. It was easier to die for a cause if you believed in the cause. Those who wanted nothing to do with the Reformation, but still lived in fear of accusations, were not as lucky to have that sentiment. It is no wonder that the people would be willing to rise up against the terrible violence. Philip, though, was not ignorant of the people's protestations. There had been occurrences where a family was marched to the stake and a crowd of people rose up and freed them. There was already some resistance forming. Philip ordered some relief. He'd kill people in secret. Tying them up in dungeons and drowning them in tubs of water would keep them from being rescued or becoming martyrs. That ought to end any resistance, right? Margaret, being on location, did see the effect on the people. They were living in fear and distress, and she told her brother he had to do something or their anger would boil over. The king responded, at the end of 1565, with letters that confirmed the previous instructions. Keep killing these people and stop being so worried about these things. Weakness shouldn't be tolerated in matters of religion. But the people could not be killed fast enough or terrorized into submission. William of Orange and others like Egmont and Horn found signs posted to their doors in Brussels asking them to step up and be the heroes that the Netherlands now clearly needed. The nobility began meeting more and more, discussing their indignation, but with no real plans to go forward. William, for his part, felt caught in a bind. He was against the policy, but the king's responses left no room for negotiation. He didn't think the king had the rights to do all the things he did. But was it really time for open rebellion? Submit or rebel? Those were his choices. But with the departure of Granville, who was the target? To most, the king was still above reproach. Orange was beginning to understand that life as they knew it was about to end, and he probably wouldn't be able to advance along a path of moderation much longer. Again, the larger towns, with strong civil authorities, protested vehemently. Some smaller counties refused to enforce the edicts. Brabant, the large Flemish duchy that contained both Brussels and Antwerp, petitioned the council that this violated the right agreed upon by Philip and that they would not enforce it. There were rallies in the streets. Make no mistake, this was a middle-class and worker-led movement. But the nobility, especially the lesser nobles, took notice. William, Egmont, and Horn sympathized, but were not yet willing to stick their necks out. They still hoped to play the role of the referee between the people and the king's inquisition, as his representatives in the Low Countries, even as they realized that that was becoming less and less likely. Next time, we'll see what happens when the Dutch people simply can't take any more, see them struggle to remove the Spanish yoke, and watch Philip respond with deception, executions, and by sending his greatest and most terrible general to crush any resistance. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>